Hello, world. Welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive. And I'm here today with Chosen Jack Hopner for take two. The first take was lost to the ether because of something called bits, I believe. I don't really understand. Um, but it was a fascinating mandala that we've created together and just vanished with the wind. Uh, so today we're just going not to redo, but uh, because no two mandalas are the same, but um, see what comes up this time. So hi, Jack. Hi. Yeah. Um, thank you. It was, it's funny because the, like the last time we talked, I had done, for some reason, the stars aligned that I had done like three podcasts over the past month before you. And I thought that they were all kind of bad and I was stilted and babbling at points. And finally, when we got to our podcast, I was like, <laughs> now I got it. And we finished that podcast, even though there were tons of technical difficulties and they were from my end. I thought, oh, man. Yes, that was it. That was it. I can't wait till that one comes out. And then, of course, the gods intervened, <laughs> and here we are again to muck it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, fantastic. Um, yeah, what's what's an idea that's been helping you live well? How would you frame it? I know that it's going to touch on your story as a Zen monk and Zen pr practitioner. Um, how how do you usually frame it? Lately, I've been thinking a lot about attention. Um, yeah, I've been mm -hmm. out of the monastery for five years, and I'm always trying to get rid of, uh, you know, the techniques and the ideas and the spiritual angle and the Zen baggage and just dissolve into my experience like I was taught at the monastery. I was never taught to be a monk. I was just taught to do that. So, and so um, something that's been helpful for me lately in doing that is just attention, like just attention. So for example, I went home, I just did a video about this on my channel, uh, Zen Confidential. I, I went home to see my family in Wisconsin. And um, <laughs> one of my relatives is kind of old and he, they didn't know I was in the room and they were talking about me. I was right there, like behind their back and they were talking about me and, and, and not entirely <laughs> kindly. So I was like, okay, first of all, welcome <laughs> back home. Second of all, how am I going to deal with this? Because it was the beginning of my trip and already I had major family flare up issues. Right. So, so I just kind of directed my attention to what was arising in that moment. Um, which was shame and frustration and anger, right? And just held my attention on it. Um, didn't try and do anything with it. It didn't, didn't get fancy. But what I noticed was you, right away, at, like right underneath that feeling of frustration and tension and sadness and, and, and all of that was like this, already my mind was yammering. And it was telling me a story about this person. And it was composing a rejoinder in my head to what this person had just been saying, you know? Um, and so I just held my attention on that and was aware of it. And the next few days, it kind of kept flaring up in me and I would bring my attention and awareness. It's so simple, right? Just bring my attention and awareness back to it. Honor the feeling and, and what sort of not even watch it, just attention, right? Just see it. And, and pay attention and oh there it is again I'm, t I'm telling myself the story I'm explaining to the person in my head how great I am and how they should shut up um, I get a whole <laughs> storyline that just unrolls of its own accord right so then after after doing this just a few times all, I think, all it takes is to touch pain 
with attention a few times. And then what I found was like, you don't have to do anything. Like attention and the problem, like go behind a closed door and work work it out. And then it's mm. then then I'm over it. Then I was okay with this person. I, I still feel a little bit annoyed with them, and but I'm kind of okay with it. I made peace with them. You know, it's very so so attention. That's been my thing lately. Just paying attention, paying attention to something that's arising inside of me, and I might normally be unconscious of it. Paying attention to the world around me instead of just seeing what I want to see on it, projecting my ideas and thoughts onto it. Yeah, I, I love that we were going to discuss this concept because it is it is very interesting to me. And at times, I I have these like insight from time to time saying it's like, man, attention is like everything. It really determines the quality of our experience on this planet because it means that we're looking and uh, yeah, being attentive to this one thing. And I know for a fact that there is there are a million other things that I'm not paying attention to, right? So in effect, that is the filter. That that's it. Hmm, that's um, an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's I'm, an interesting I'm interested. way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, what I was going to say was that now. Go ahead. I, I had almost thought of it as there's only one thing happening, and that's what I have to pay attention to. Not necessarily that there's a ton of stuff happening, and I'm filtering with my attention. But I mean, for example, in that moment, there was there was for me there was this pain arising, and my mind mm -hmm. wanted to go to a thousand other things, but that's what I needed to pay attention to. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely a question of if not curation, then prioritization right of of what to attend to and as you say there's a kind of wisdom involved in knowing what's going to be beneficial to pay attention to um i want to ask you do you find um that at least emotionally is it that if you pay attention to something do you find that after the initial kind of very formulaic uh emotional response of like oh i heard things bad things being said about me, right? The ego, the identity. Um, if you pay attention, is it the case that other emotions come as possible responses? Like there's a more of an exploration if you don't just jump at the first suggestion? Yeah. Sometimes, like it's, it's interesting. Sometimes the thing gets, uh, it's hooks in me. And I can't, I just am overpowered by an emotion. And then usually I, I have some sort of notion that I'm supposed to be mindful, but it's not really happening. And I don't know. Then there are other moments where um, I can actually, this is a bad way of putting it. I know this is a, in a problematic way of putting it, so we, we can unpack it a little bit. But um, there, there are other times where I feel like, uh, like I'm, I'm a, a little bit higher than the emotion and I can see it arising. So it's not, it doesn't have its hooks in me. Uh, and this gets really mm. tricky because who's doing the seeing and is there someone behind that doing the seeing? And is there someone behind that mm. doing the seeing? All I can say is, yeah, there's, um, there's, there can be a ton of new emotions that will arise, but, but hopefully what's, what's uh, able to happen is I'm not over, I don't become the emotion. Um, but there's a sense that it's happening, an awareness of it, and I'm just putting my, touching my attention to it. Oh, there it is. It's 
simply not wearing it or becoming it, but, but putting my attention to it. If that makes any, if that makes any sense, we can, we can keep unpacking it because it gets a little, it gets a little bit. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think, I think we should, because I, I get, I get the notion that it's not immediately clear to me how, um, if, if there is some daylight between our conceptions of, uh, of attention, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm very intrigued. So could you give a little bit of background on how the concept itself, kind of the, the development of it in your mind, maybe through the years? Yeah, I mean... Well, what do we look at it as? I mean, yeah, so through the years, mostly, you know, I, I developed my practice on the cushion at the monastery and then through some really uh, big challenges at the monastery because for some reason that that place was a battlefield of sorts and it really <laughs> put your feet to the fire. So through those two things, but keeping it to the cushion, you know, we would do these retreats that were called die session or great session retreats. And, um, you know, they would start at three o'clock in the morning and they would end at about 10 o'clock at night. And, and in between there were maybe 20 or 30 people. And we were like a body of practitioners. We were like a centipede, a Zen centipede. And I was like one little leg on the centipede and we were all kind of moving together and doing the same form and in the Zen meditation hall together, we basically did formal meals. We did meditation practice. We did koan practice with our teacher. We did chanting and we listened to his show. So we did a five thing. That's all we did all, all day. It was all done more or less in silence, total silence. And so you sit there on the cushion and you just sit and you sit. And I remember my very first retreat, I was not prepared for the endless sitting that I had to do. And I was so full of, of rage and so full of, uh, I was so annoyed with the guy that was sitting next to me. And for no reason at all, I had no idea who he was. I, I never <laughs> met him again. I, mean, I still remember him very clearly. Um, and I, you know, and all these emotions would come up, right? And, and you couldn't act them out. You, you couldn't say anything. You couldn't move across the room. You couldn't go get a cup of coffee. You couldn't check your phone. You couldn't do anything except sit there. So, you know, after a while, what you begin to realize is that your mind is basically playing tricks on you and you believe it, right? I mean, that's the alpha and the omega mm. of it. If you have to sit there and deal with it and you can't move, then you realize, you know, it's the mind that's the problem. You have to get some distance from it. So when I say pay attention now, I, and I'm trying to manifest that same kind of practice in the world, it's not getting caught up in the suffering. So not being uh, attached to the suffering. So there could mm -hmm. be pain in a moment, like pain from my relatives saying something about me behind my back, you know, pain in the heart from that. But if I get caught up in it and I start telling myself a story and, and, you know, stepping into the, I don't know, the, the wet underwear of the moment and wearing it around, like it, it take ownership of it, then that's suffering, right? So that's kind of what, what I'm talking about mm. when I say attention. It separates pain from suffering. Okay, interesting. So it sounds like uh, attention to you is, uh, yeah. What? Well, uh, how would we? How are we to define it? Is it? Is it a mode of of thinking or a mode of being? 
um, that kind of doesn't let you, that puts a buffer between you and thoughts basically, and allows you to have uh, a larger repertoire of responses rather than a knee jerk one. Uh, is it something like that? I feel like, you know, it, it, Again, it's tricky because, you know, in Zen, there's this um, teaching of anatta or no self. So essentially, there's what we think of as the self is um, in, uh, it's not really there. It's in a, it's an illusion. Um, it's a, like an optical illusion, but, but of the mind. It's an illusion that the mind throws up. And ultimately, like, like I have, I, in, in an ultimate sense. Right. Um, so, so I, I think it's more along the lines of connection, like, uh, connecting to what's really happening and when, and and when Mm. that, and when that connection happens, then, then like a self is, arises spontaneously and naturally. So, the idea that we have a fixed self, like a little homunculus inside of us, that's me, mine, I, that's tautological, and that's what the illusion is in Zen. But it does say, okay, there is a conditional self that arises from moment to moment. And within the tradition that I practice, my teacher would say that self is the marriage or the interpenetration of the inside world, your inside, and the outside. And on the border or the inter penetration point, like the cleft where they meet, that's where the self arises. And it keeps arising and it keeps dissolving and it keeps arising and it keeps dissolving. Mm. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I have to apologize to listeners at this point because maybe for the past month I've been evoking the name of um, Ian McGilchrist. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> but I've been reading his book about, um, he's a neuroscientist and philosopher and he's talking about the differentiation in hemispheres in the brain and talks about the fact that each hemisphere has its own um, set of skills and personality, basically. And that, um, mm. you know, and he makes sure that he doesn't, that he neither overstates or understates this. Okay. So it's not like he's going to die on this hill of the, like, they're so different and so on. Um, but basically, like, the left hemisphere is the one that is associated with, um, there's this like laser focus on one thing with, with an intent to manipulate it and really look at just this one thing. And a lot of times, uh, completely let go of context around it. And I feel like, um, ourselves are, are an object of thought, right? That is not really different than the selves of other people or of a tree that you know really well or anything that kind of does help you walk around in the world, right? It's useful. Like the problem only becomes when you're so invested in, in that thing, in that object where uh, you make it very much you at the same time, but you also actually forget the the you that is an actor. And so you try to uh, design that other you all the while making the acting you kind of miserable in the process because it's not really involved in any larger context, right? So you get into these uh, episodes of rumination because all you can think about is is you, right? And it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that we want to be able to switch to the other mode, which is... Uh, less differentiation between us and the environment and us and what we do and um, 
lean more towards uh, flow states and so on, things where there is uh, flow. Yeah, um, yeah, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And it's, so uh, attention, attention would be, attention would be something like uh, a, a mechanism, like a go-to thing that makes you open your mind in some sense and, and get in touch with that other sound uh, with that other side a little bit. Yeah. I like how you brought up flow state and, and also attention is like a tool or a pie. It's like the tool you're caught up in your head. You're soft. Basically in Buddhism, the problem is suffering. It, everything comes back to that first problem, suffering. It's not Buddhism doesn't answer. Is there life after death? At least in the Zen school or, is there a God, any of that? It just starts with suffering. And so attention is, is a tool to orient us correctly away from suffering. So when we pay attention to, basically everybody is always doing something. We're always involved in an activity. We tend to think of ourselves mm -hmm. as like independent agents moving in, in an atomic way th throughout the world. But the Buddhist idea is that, or teachings tell us that we're, um, we arise out of activity, the Dharma activity of, of the universe. So to get out of the state of suffering, and the suffering comes from attachment and, and hunkering down inside of ourselves and becoming greedy, all the sins, if you will, or all the kleshas, the problems come out of selfishness in Buddhism. Um, so attention is, is a way of escaping that or, or transcending it. And you, so mm. mostly we're putting our attention into the activity that we're doing. So that's why you have all these Zen in the art of archery or Zen in the art of Ikebani flower arranging or mm -hmm. Zen in the art of, of tea drinking, because you're doing these very simple, like when you're doing a tea ceremony, you, you do these incredibly simple movements like picking up the chawa the teacup and rotating it in your hand all this focus all this attention all this giving is going into this activity and you forget yourself that's like the flow state you talk you forget yourself when you forget yourself you're connecting with with everything really everything in the universe however infinite our universe is you're one with it in that moment you know then you drink the tea and the you're one with the tea and the tea becomes part of your body and it becomes your energy system. Right. And then you exhale pleasure and your carbon dioxide goes out and feeds plants. Like there's all this interpenetration, right? This um, um, interbeing is what Thich that Han calls mm. it. And that's what we're trying to do with our attention. That's what we're trying to, to manifest with our attention. Sort of get rid of that clotted um, non-flow state of the egoic mind. Right. And that clotted non uh, flow state of the egoic mind is um, very like it's like a default and I, I don't know why that is exactly but maybe it's just our lot as human beings Christians call it original sin maybe mm -hmm. um, so it takes a little bit of work <laughs> effort um, uh, bone crushing effort is what they call it in um, one of the Zen texts to, to get out of that uh, egoic state yeah yeah, I, I would dare to put forward a hypothesis and, you know, I'm not considering it. A, I'm not going to say it's going to be very good, but um, I think that it is this tendency of ours that gave rise to civilization and technology 
of being able to look at things and manipulating them that gave us all the power that we have, right? But this is exactly it. When you are kind of tinkering with the world around you, you're seeing it as an object. And I think, uh, you know, at least most cultures, definitely Western culture, are just stuck in that. So it's to us, it's natural. I imagine that for some uh, societies who, that are primitive, and I'm not meaning uh, primitive in a, in a pejorative way, but just still living their life very much in touch with nature. I imagine that's not the, that's not the default, uh, so much. And I really like the fact that you point out that we're always doing something because in a sense, it could also be framed as the understanding that we are participants, whether we like it or not. And I think a lot of the time we feel like we might not want to participate in something. And that's either a, a defense mechanism because we don't want to feel some feeling, we've been hurt before, something like that. I think it's a major breakthrough if a person realizes it's like, oh, there is no question about being a participant here, right? It's like that moment when you realize that is not taking action or not making a decision, it is taking action or making a decision, right? And the question now is, are you going to be an unwilling participant, which is miserable, or a willing participant, which opens up a place for you where you can uh, start dance and improvise and work with what you have, right? Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, yeah, even if you're in, a, in some sort of sci-fi version of the perfect, like, deprivation tank, there's nothing to sort of distract you or, or, or stimulate your senses or anything like that. Like space has still made room for you to sit there. <laughs> You're still mm. a recipient of the generosity of the cosmos and you're still a member of, of the human race and you're still in a space and time and, um, you're in the game, yeah, no matter what, and you're breathing in and breathing. I mean, there's a reason we focus on the breath and we just start with the breath and that, you know, it's the teaching. Everything is in the breath. Um, all of the teachings and all of the principles are in the breath. There's, you know, you're taking in oxygen and it's feeding your body and becoming part of you, your bones and your thoughts. So where does your oxygen end and your bones and thoughts begin? I mean, and then mm. you're exhaling, and what you've exhaled is becoming part of the world around you. It's becoming, I've got some trees and plants in my room. They're directly becoming part of the plants. So are the plants now me, you know? And I'm taking you in right now. I'm seeing you. I'm nodding with you. I'm getting your mojo. Um, you're in my nervous system. There's a continuum. I mean, there are all these tricks that the that the life is playing on us to make us think we're separate and God bless those tricks. They're fascinating, right? But essentially we're on a continuum. You're going right into my nervous system and you're inside me and I'm right in your nervous system and inside you, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where I was yeah, going with that. There's, there's a, there's a beautiful video on YouTube by, um, Derek, whatever his name is, but the Veritasium channel, which is, it's great. He's doing like uh, scientific experiments and physics and all sorts of things. And he did a, a very famous video about electricity and how it doesn't work in the way people think it does because it's not electrons that run through a wire that actually carry the energy. 
actually energy is carried through fields and mm. what oh, yeah, it does yeah. is create a field so actually energy in a wire for example is is carried in in the wire as well but also in a field around it and uh so my wife just watched it last night and came to me like all yeah lit up like because it is it's a it's a very interesting uh finding to to learn it's very counterintuitive and you know she immediately took it to kind of her field of interest which is human beings movement connection and you know making the inference that exactly there there are fields and then if there is a field around me that carries energy in some way and i'm not sure on the details like we're not wires neither we are batteries mm-hmm. i still have mm-hmm. to research what it means as it applies to us but you know sharks find their prey through kind of being tuned into these mm-hmm. fields and um yeah it corroborates your point of just like uh, really making us where, where do we end if it's energy that's that's related with us it's that, yeah, it's very very yeah. interesting yeah it's very interesting to think about it in terms of fields instead of like particles or bits um but but vibrations within fields yeah um i want to ask uh something theoretical about buddhism which you're likely to give me a good answer to and then maybe connect that with your personal experience of uh living in the monastery and ultimately um leaving it So in Buddhism, I remember the years, like the formative years when I read a lot of Buddhist and Taoist texts is like 18, 19. And this is like the tail end of a period of depression. Um, so in one sense, it really helped me, uh, especially Zen koans, which I found like this amazing kind of almost hack because it disrupts the normal flow of thought, right? It makes you, okay. So it makes you immediately realize that there are places where this kind of thought is not going to take you through, right? Mm-hmm. You hit this um, confusion and you're maybe forced to switch onto the other mode. Um, but eventually what I felt about Buddhism, and this is probably not Zen, but you'll be able to, to make the distinction, is that actually for a lot of people who do delve deep into Buddhism, And for me, it was, I did feel like in the end, it was making me make the transition into being a fly on the wall when it comes to life, like a non-participant. And then eventually, maybe even the wall itself. And at that point, I was, I was less um, enthusiastic about it because I really wanted to go back and, and play the game. So... I realized that our discussion kind of so far painted the picture that it is driving you towards living in the world and really being there in in action and yet at the other side like I'm wondering there are a lot of people who say that you know moving is thinking like thinking in a good way comes with movement and then now I'm thinking it's like well why are we sitting why is there sitting meditation and not something that's more um participatory in nature and then um i don't know if this is related at all uh so maybe save that for later but i'm also interested in like your own development as a zen practitioner and kind of m- what made you eventually go be a normal person shall we call it yeah well there's a lot in that um 
we'll try and try and open it up. So you felt you felt I, I've heard that from people before the fly on the wall thing or or feeling removed or a few steps back. Mm. A lot of times and my mentor will talk about this because he's gotten a few students like this lately. He's a Zen priest and, and um, he'll meet with students during retreats. And a lot of times he'll meet with these like really fired up young men. Um, I'm thinking of just a couple guys recently. It could be women too. It could be anybody. Um, and they kind of have an attitude of, I got it. And they've had some kind of breakthrough. Like we, you get some of these breakthroughs sometimes where you learn to not believe every, you learn to just not believe everything that your mind tells you. And it's pretty eye opening. And you learn to sort of see the world around you in some sense as a, as a dream, as it's called in some of the Buddhist texts. Um, and it can have that effect that you're talking about where, where you're stepping back, um, and that's kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of a Vedantic approach, I think. It's kind of a Vedantic insight. It's like that first insight when you realize that um, that you're not you and the world is not separate from you and um, everything is kind of unfolding as it should and I don't really need to do anything. I can just sort of sit back and watch it with my sort of semi-enlightened permagrin. Like mm. I met a lot of people like that in Los Angeles too, by the way. Yeah, like I said, it's usually, it was oftentimes people who had been working a little bit with like a Vedantic guru or an Indian guru who's kind of trying to get them to have that first insight. Um, what I was taught was that's, that he, my teacher would call that like shallow Zen or, or, or uh, kindergarten Zen. Um, <laughs> and he would, he was really, or he would call it being attached to God. He would say, um, he would say the problem with God is, the problem with heaven is, being attached to heaven. He would say the problem with heaven is there's no toilets or restaurants in heaven. So, so <laughs> he, he, he really, it was almost like his um, signature move was to disrupt this sort of um, state of, kind of, of, of superficial equanimity or, or, or pull you back down to reality and, and get you to interact and get you to connect mm. and get you to be here in the moment, um, in your shoes, doing your practice. So, so to, to, to your points about moving, being better meditation, sometimes they're just sitting there. I mean, I was taught at the monastery, basically everything you were doing was some version of Zazen. Za is, is like sitting and Zen is um, concentration. So all Zazen or sitting meditation in Buddha, Zen Buddhism is, is sitting meditation or sitting concentration. But when you were in the kitchen as the cook or the tenzo, which was an officer position, your practice was to make relationship with the carrots that you're chopping for the soup mm. uh, to make relationship with the ingredients and the fire of, of the stove. Like your job is always to be connecting to the world around you and to dissolve the part of the, the, the thinking mind when it arises. Right. So, so to speak to the 18 year old you that felt distracted or felt removed or, or um, kind of separated from his world mm -hmm. Um, my teacher would say that's, that's not uh, Zen. Uh, it might, I don't know what it is, but it's not Zen. Zen is to continually be 
connecting and dissolving mm. the thinking mind. And then a new self arises in the next moment. It's like a fresh reborn self, right? And that's mm. the practice. That's manifesting the Dharma activity. And then that new self that arises, you kind of become aware of it, you know, and you feel pretty damn good <laughs> because you lost yourself. How do you touch the garment of God? I mean, you're in God's presence when you lose yourself like that. When you give yourself to an activity and lose yourself in it, that's the divine. But then you come back. And oh, and and, and all that all that happens in kindergarten. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, so that that's 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 the practice that I was taught. Um, but yeah, so sometimes if, if you know, I couldn't. I needed a teacher. Really, I mean, I I couldn't have sort of gotten there on my own. I needed a teacher to kind of keep pushing me and prodding me and sh being a farther ahead. Or, or being where, being, having been in the past where I was then, that's what I needed. So they could kind of point the way. Yeah. And so w when it comes to you and your practice, um, sounds like this might not have been the reason, but I'm, I'm trying to um, think for you, uh, first, if you could tell us how long you've lived at the monastery and what kind of led you to move on eventually. And do you, do you see it as an act of, uh, of liberation in some sense? Uh, what was it there that uh, made you decide to move on? Well, we had a sort of a unspoken um, sort of path at our monastery. It was definitely not a place where you stayed forever. So it wasn't like a Christian monastery. Uh, you, mm -hmm. so you started off, you were a student and then you became a scholarship student, which meant you could stay at the monastery for free. Um, you got away with that for about two years and then suddenly you found senior monks and maybe even your teacher, the Roshi asking you, so when are you going to get ordained? So then you had to become ordained and you became a chicken monk. And you went from being a great Zen student to a terrible monk. <laughs> and then as a chicken <laughs> monk, you had to manifest in all the different officer positions. So the, the Jiki Jitsu, who's like the fierce um, sergeant at arms in the meditation hall. Then the Shoji, who's like the gentle uh, grandmother figure in the meditation hall. Then the Densu, who took care of the chanting in the chanting hall. Then the cook. And then the head monk. And about time, about you become the head monk and you're managing all the other positions and you're working closely with Roshi and you're five, six years, maybe seven, eight, nine years into your practice. Suddenly, Roshi wanted to make you an Osho, which is a Zen priest. So you get uh, Suiji Shiki, which is your ordination for priesthood ceremony. And now you go from being a great monk to a terrible priest. And around about that time, Roshi just, the teacher just can't stand the sight of you. And nothing you do is right. And you're starting to feel like the 18-year-old kid who's living under his parents' roof. Like, I got to get out of here. I got to go do my own thing. And the expectation <laughs> is that you're going to go set up your own temple and you're going to teach Zen in your own way. So I went through that process. And after about nine, ten years, I became a priest. And then my teacher got really sick. And that was the end of his life. So my departure got a little bit interrupted because I had to be there at his side and take care of him and ultimately help him die. Um, but then when he died, it was time for me to move on and, and do my own thing. Um, and yeah. And so for a while, I just kind of uh, didn't do any um, real teaching. I definitely didn't set up a temple. But eventually I set it up my, my Patreon page and my YouTube channel. And um, this has kind of become my little, 
online temple of sorts where I give talks and offer writings and stuff. Um, and I, you know, it, it's interesting, like, you know, the robes can get really heavy <laughs> if you wear mm. them for too long, like they get really heavy and, and they can also be, a, they're big, thick robes. They could be a great place to hide. <laughs> so I was kind of happy to, I'm happy to take them off. It's very liberating. It's also very humbling, you know, Mm-hmm. Not many, not many people give me those googly eyes that they used to give me when they come up the mountaintop and they'd see me with my shaved head and my robes on, looking like their idea of what a Zen priest should be. You know, so but it's a fair trade-off yeah, for my freedom. <laughs> no, it's. Um, I think about it a lot about how a, a, a lot of being considered wise in our culture is looking the part, right? It's like mm, any so kind true. of uh, false guru who ends up being uh, prosecuted for for different transgressions is like, then you look at it and you realize, oh, he just looked the part. Like, and it's amazing how dazzling the, the looking the part part can be, right? And um, I, I would think that it takes uh, some courage to let go of this looking the part of the appearance because I imagine that it's a power of sorts to finally have that and it's a kind of power that people who get to be in those positions are sometimes corrupted by. They, um, you know, start believing that uh, people projecting on them this kind of concept of like, oh, he's a wise man they can, they start seeing that as evidence for the fact that they really are wise, right? So that's so true. It yeah, is interesting yeah, yeah. that you that you did opt out to have freedom and uh, in many ways become ordinary again when you could probably have had even a a YouTube channel that's kind of more flashy in some sense if you were still doing everything in robes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're right. If you can look the part and you can act the part, you got the part. <laughs> like nobody can take it away from you. It's, there's a great, great short story by Tolstoy called Father Ser- Sergius or Sergius. It's really a masterpiece. It's the greatest piece of writing I have ever read about being a monk. Um, it's a, somewhere in between a short story and a novella, and it's about this guy who's on the verge of getting married to a woman uh, who's a little bit higher in status than him, and I forget why but he just gives it up and he joins a monastery and he goes through these phases as a, as an acolyte, as a practitioner. Um, and you see him go through these phases and he's very earnest in the beginning as all beginning practitioners are like, he's, you have to be like, you surrender your ego. The Chinese, uh, the Japanese characters for Unsui, Unsui is a beginning monk translate into floating clouds, flowing water. You go with the flow, you float along, you follow the rules, you're naive and open-hearted as a young monk. So that's what Father Sergius is. Then one day he sees one of his seniors being very political, and he gets disgusted with this. And he says he's going to quit the monastery because you guys are a bunch of phonies. And they say, well, why don't you go into this cave and meditate for a while? So he goes into the cave, and he meditates, and he starts to develop a real... um, practice real spiritual life then he gets tempted by this woman who comes to see this weird man in the cave who 
is pretending like he's a, a, an enlightened guy, but she wants to kind of see the real guy. So she's trying to seduce him. And Father Sergius has this moment where he's so overwhelmed by desire that he puts his hand on a chopping block and he picks up an ax and he chops off his thumb. And it's this hardcore oh, moment at the midpoint of the story where you were like, whoa, Tolstoy, dude, <laughs> dude. where are you going with this? It's created this character that is like not going to stop in the spiritual progress. So now he starts to get people coming to him. Like, like he, he left, he chopped something off. He ripped it out of himself. He, he sacrificed. Right. And, and things start to happen in his practice and people start to come to him and he starts being able to heal them. And give them healing words. And he becomes a guru, like you were just saying. He really becomes a guru. And there's this beautiful line that Tolstoy has where, where the guy says, I've got a well inside of me. And the people keep taking from it, taking from it. And they're going down to the bottom. And there's just muddy water there. But they keep taking. And I'm, I'm feeling drained. And, they, and the old um, thieving phonies that were his superiors at the monastery come and they're like, look, you know, we got all these people out here. We need to sort of build up a structure to support you. So they build a church around him. There's probably a little gift shop there and maybe a restaurant, you know, and he becomes <laughs> comfortable in his role as the guru. Of course, a young girl comes to tempt him once more. And this time he gives in. And the next day he leaves the monastery. He's gone. And, he kind of re-enters the world again and disappears. And the story closes with Father Sergius kind of living on a farm as somebody's helper in Siberia. And it says that basically his job was to take care of the garden and to take care of the children. <laughs> so I think that that is the perfect outline of what happens on the spiritual path. And I think, as, as to your point... <laughs> A lot of people who become gurus and wear their robes and, you know, become gurus get stuck in that phase of building the church around them, having the gift shop, having the... Having I, I, I was going to say, I was going to say he's a great character because it only took him one, one slip to realize that maybe this isn't for him, right? When right. in real life, it's, it, it might take... It, it's probably not going to come from them. It's going to come from detectives when there's just like, right. okay, you, you need to stop. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's hard to get out of that. It's a gilded freaking cage. You know, it really is. The, I do not envy priests. I do not envy gurus. You are on 24-7. People are always looking at you with expectations. They're always sort of judging you, good and bad, and they're projecting things on you. It's a, it's a, it's a huge burden. And people... People who, who pull it, I, I don't think anybody pulls it off perfectly. Nobody does. Nobody is unaffected by that role. I mean, nobody. Um, yeah, but, but I think some are more honest within it than others. And I really have a deep regard for those people because I've been in that position and it's, it's not easy. Yeah, I remember watching uh, Wild Wild Country, the, the Osho miniseries yeah. and seeing him, you know, come onto the stage and... Uh, I also just watched uh, Glass Onion on on Netflix, which is uh, not at all bad, and it's all about the you know the idea that under a very fancy and lavish veneer there can be like very simple truths hiding in plain sight, and with Osho it's like you can actually see him come on stage. He's not blinking, which is really weird. Uh, he's wearing these robes. 
and that's very special. He's being given all this like unearned people kind of bow to him or whatever. And then he just sits there and he's basically just a postmodernist, right? Just making you kind of question yourself and your whole worldview. And, you know, well, well, you said love, like what is love? And he goes on to give this like very, very uh, rhetorical, like perfection of a speech. And, you know, in the end, if, if you look through this veneer of like a person who doesn't blink, which I don't know, makes him god godly in some sense. And we're robes, you're like, oh, it's, there's a, a postmodernist here who's mm. making me, um, kind of question everything. And it was really interesting. And yeah, that documentary, I think, raises a lot of questions, uh, around that because he's almost like the perfect guru right look mm -hmm. at how many people he managed to mobilize yeah um yeah, if, if yeah. we were to kind of take it back to to the concept of attention um is there any way where you would connect it with um with that and maybe and maybe more generally like it could be being caught up in this kind of niche field of being a guru or any kind of other positions in society which are guru-like, like a business leader, a politician of whatever, like, how does that relate to the, to the concept of attention? Would you say that is, um, that is also in a sense, um, uh, a lapse of a failing to, to kind of hold on to attention in of sorts? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, like one of the great things that I realized through the sort of the tragedy of my teacher's final years. Um, so he didn't leave a successor for one thing, which essentially means the death of his lineage. Um, the, the lineage goes from teacher to teacher or Zen master to Zen master. He did not qualify anyone to give koan practice, which essentially means he had no successor, which means that his lineage is over. So that was kind of a tragedy. And then he, there, were, there had been a huge scandal because of many years, decades, really, of sexual misconduct allegations against our teachers. So, bam, bam, two wow. pretty big things at the end of his life. Um, one of the things, the only thing you can really take away from that is pretty amazing, which is <laughs> that you only had your own um, practice in the end anyways. So it's really easy to get dazzled by a great teacher, whether it's like Rajneesh Osho or Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, who was another spectacular um, teacher who had a horrific legacy in many ways, um, misconduct and that sort of thing. Um, like you get dazzled by these teachers and you feel like you have to do it their way. You feel like you have to follow exactly what they're saying. You, 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 you get so inspired by them. And it, uh, it's amazing because it allows you to do things you never thought humanly possible. But in the end, you know, it's your practice, it's your life, and you have the power. Like, you are empowered. Your practice is not the size of your teacher and never will be. It's you size. And that size is equal to the size of your teacher. It's equal to the size of Rajneesh. It's equal to the size of Buddha. We all have Buddha nature equally. So yeah, uh, it, it always comes back to two things, really the attention. And it's, um, you, you know, is something arising within me in this moment that's causing suffering? Um, and can I connect 
to the world outside of me, give myself to the activity that I'm engaged in at the moment to dissolve my ego and, and stop suffering. I mean, that's really essentially what it comes down to. The teachers help us do this, but you know, I mean, I used to live in Los Angeles. It's so, there's so many gurus that pass through there and it's just such cool people that come to those things and everybody has such a vibe and it's just so easy to get caught up in it. They hear the teacher say amazing things that your mind is just, it's like a little trinket that your mind wants to hold on to and put on the shelf inside your head. But ultimately, you know, the final few years of my teacher's life, he just came through and smashed all those little trinkets. And then you're left with what you started with, you know, and, and hopefully you, you know, you're a, a little bit wiser for the experience and a little bit humbler, and a, a little bit less attached to your ego. Otherwise, what was it for? You know, it was a waste. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I had an encounter with, uh, with an LA resident who, who was a traveler of mine. I'm a tour guide in Israel. And at some point we had come to this beautiful spring in a rather dry place. And he asked me a question, which I, I don't think I've been asked since I was six or something. And the question was, do you read? <laughs> I was like, yes, Interesting. naturally I read, <laughs> but what does it say about you? And he's like, I read the monk who sold his Ferrari like six or seven times a year. And I was like, you have to understand, this is one of the most materialistic people I've ever met. So it was, but he's reading it to be inspired and somehow apparently sustain his materialistic lifestyle in a kind of convoluted uh, way, which I thought is really funny, like to turn to this authority figure. And if I'm going to kind of relate that to attention, I think that's a, a pretty good way to think that you are um, not falling into, not falling for your own bullshit. If you completely give yourself up to a teacher right now, is you're almost absolved of this thing in in a in, in a pretty real sense. Mm -hmm. You don't fall for your own bullshit, but it's because you stopped thinking completely. Right? There's no right. critical part to your thinking, and I think that's the appeal for many many people and. I think that a lot more people should keep in mind that away from spiritual practices, for example, if you wanted to be a clockmaker in medieval Europe, you know, you would have a mentor and an apprentice, right? A master and an apprentice. And the whole point there, the whole premise was that the apprentice is going to become a master and not follow the master at some point, right? And for yeah. example, in Judaism, there's great pride in rabbis that have uh, raised people who go on to become rabbis that are even considered wiser than themselves, right? So there's always a point to be made about being suspicious about the people who still want you to be around 10 or 20 years uh, later. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's like you, you give yourself to the teacher, and I, I feel like that's a really – most people don't even get to that point. And I feel like that's a really, I, I, that's a, that is a really important moment. You have a teacher, you know, you have a, almost like a path. So you don't, and in that moment, like you said, you don't fall for your own bullshit, but you, 
can't fall for the teacher's bullshit either because the teacher's going to have their own <laughs> bullshit. They're a human being. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that way I think not to go here, but I do think that was a big failing in our community. I think um, that my teacher was, um, you know, he arguably kind of was a strong personality and he cult cultivated almost like attachment in his students. And a lot of us just never really grew up. Um, yeah. And um, felt kind of protected by him. And still to this day, I mean, I'm sorry to have to say it, but like a lot of conversations within the community revolve around, well, Roshi once said, and Roshi said this, and Roshi said this, and, and, and Roshi, and I remember Roshi said, and it's almost like referring to him for, to have their own authority. It's just like an impulse, you know? And for a while, when he was alive, I think that that was a tool that we all used. It was a way of flattening out any hierarchy between us and kind of um, um, uh, how to put it. Yeah, it, it just led to a certain air of, of yeah, humility to everyone's arguments mm -hmm. and discussions. But now that people are still doing it, I think it was, it's time to let that go. You can't hold on to that forever. You can't hold on to the teacher forever. And you may not ever be equal to the teacher in your enlightenment or understanding or mojo, but you can be, I mean, it, it sounds like a cheesy Americanism, but you got to be yourself. I remember a monk told me once, he said, you can become anything you want at this monastery, but in the end you'll become yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and it, that didn't make, it made no sense to me at the time and I've never forgotten it because <laughs> I think it's true. <laughs> right. It reverberated through the years probably. And that's when you know so that things are meaningful. Sometimes you just remember it for some yeah. reason and it takes yeah. time to ripe as an insight. Um, yeah. If we wanted to um, tell listeners on maybe a, a beginning point to start like looking into this world of attention shifting and paying attention. Would you today follow some of the um, traditional devices and you're welcome to share these. And also have you, have you come up with ones that, uh, that are you, that maybe are a bit different, that are already have the, the flavor of, of, you know, that you put into them, um, that you can kind of, uh, maybe share with people so they could maybe try, like, what is the first step in kind of being able to harness attention? I think the first step is, um, and it's the last step. I mean, it's how I started it must have been like 25, 30 years ago. I, I lived in Los Angeles. It was very loud. It was my head was very busy because I was a screenwriter, and I would do what I called like sacred time every day. So I had this little apartment, but I had a kind of a big closet, and I put a chair in there. And I would go into this closet, I would shut the door, and I would have this sacred time. And the idea was that I left my shoes. And then all my problems and my concerns and my dreams and my hopes and my ambitions outside the door with my shoes. And I would just sit there. And this is before I even really found Zen or meditation. I would just sit there and breathe and um, be with myself. And, you know, if my mind wandered, um, sooner or later, I would notice it. And that's great. That's, that's 
um, the birth of awareness. That's, you know, God's eyes opening up inside me. And I would notice, oh, I wandered. And then I would bring my attention back to my breath. Just do that for 10 minutes. Um, the mind wanders, bring it back to the breath. And we talked earlier about how that inhale and the exhale is really the real first and foremost manifestation of the teaching and the practice of the teaching at the same time, that exchange of inside and outside and self and other and in and out. Um, just breathing. Yeah. So, and to, to, to this day that I do it now, but I do it for a bit longer, 25 minutes a day, um, every day, sit down on a cushion, cross my legs or just sit down on a pillow, really cross my legs and, and comport my posture. So the posture is really important. Like as your body does, your mind will follow really, I find. So it's like sitting up with some integrity and not tight, but not, um, not slack, but you know, the spine is straight and my shoulders are, are relaxed and my nose is I ideally parallel with my abdomen and my eyes have like a soft gaze, maybe three, four feet in front of me. Um, and I just breathe in and breathe out, you know, and, and just kind of release the day. I do this at the end of the day, release the day. And there's a slight sense of intention towards tomorrow, but I don't hold any of this stuff too tightly. It's mostly I'm with the breath, you know, because if I start thinking about tomorrow, forget it. Now I'm just perseverating and that's mm. not Zazen. That's not meditation. That's not sacred time. That's human time human concern. So if a human concern grabs me, it's not sacred time, sacred time, just breathing and holding all these different things lightly. Like if I try and throw out or push down my human concerns, they're going to mm. come up. Right. So try and not really holding them. If they're there, I hold them lightly and just do this breath practice, breathing in, breathing out. And sometimes with real focus, like giving myself to the breath so that there's no thinking mind at all, you know, giving myself to the inhale and the exhale. And I'll do that sitting and, and I'll do a hike or a walk and I'll do the same sort of thing. But instead of giving myself to the breath, it's the activity of moving activity of walking. Walking is a really great and underrated spiritual practice. As long as Absolutely. you don't, get, you know, it, it, it like gives your mind, it engages your mind in a way that doesn't make you overthink or perseverate or anything. And so I try and give my activity or give my mind back to that activity of just moving. And it can be incredibly inspiriting, I find. So walking and sitting, those are my two practices. Yeah, in a closet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like it. I like the fact that you, you know, this is, uh, this is human ingenuity, I think, that you, for yourself, even before learning of the very formal practices of Zen, you kind of came up with this type of ritual, right? This is yes, what it is in the end. You have your sacred space and, um, and finding it. And uh, I love seeing this kind of, uh, problem solving and, and creative process in, in people. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I, is there any type of, um, visualization exercises in Zen, because I found for myself, um, it's, it's useful to possibly visualize something like the words actually, and this could maybe be applicable for people who are more vision oriented when it comes to imagining or something, but actually see the words kind of maybe come out of some sort of volcano or something like that. And then immediately crushing them to bit so they disintegrate and lie there are just ruins of words at the bottom of the volcano and 
I think at least it kind of resembles that in the sense that you're, you're going to find that you literally can't think in words. And it's very interesting. It has a very interesting effect. And I wonder if in any spiritual practices, it goes down more to the, to that kind of uh, visualization techniques, or is that not a re uh, really a thing? I, you know, there, there are techniques like that. It's almost like it's something in between contemplation and just pure zazen. Um, what you're talking about, I know that there's Hakuin's butter visualization, which is a little bit different, but he talks about, imagine there's a piece of, people should just Google it, but Hakuin's uh, butter visualization, it's kind of a way of sort of imagining yourself into the state of Zazen. And there's a butter stick on top of your head and it melts into your head and it goes through your body and you can feel it going through your body and warming, mm. etc. Um, you know, off the top of my head, Zen tend, I would say there aren't so many visualizations that I've heard of. I mean, anything you can use to get you there, I think is a, is a good idea. And, and I'll use various things at various times, but the ultimate practice is, is to nothing standing between you and, and your um, surroundings. And so that means exhaling completely and inhaling completely. If you're visualizing something, you've got a tool there and potential, um, it's potentially that will become something your mind holds on to, gets attached to and becomes kind of a new problem or a new distraction mm. or something. Um, but within the Buddhist tradition, for sure, especially the Tibetan tradition, there are tons of deconstructive techniques like exactly like the one you're talking about where you're mm. deconstructing the thinking mind you're picking it apart you're you're just unscrewing all the screws and taking it apart that thinking perseverating logical rational mind that we attach to and the, and the volcano uh, visualization like you're talking about sounds like something similar you're really embodying in your mind this idea that the words are are um not fundamental mm. All right. Thanks. Sounds good. Um, yeah, well, this, this has been amazing. Very different from our first conversation, <laughs> yeah. which is really good. Completely yeah. different mandala. Um, right. really enjoyed it immensely. Um, I, I'd love for you to maybe more explicitly tell the listeners and viewers at this point, now we have video, um, where your other thoughts and kind of, um, uh, vlogs, I guess it's fair to say vlogs where they, where they appear and any other kind of venues where they can find your stuff, which is really awesome. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I've got a, a YouTube channel called Zen confidential, uh, where I try and post to like a teaching a week. Um, and I have a book called Zen confidential, which you can find on Amazon, also a book called single white monk. And I've got a bunch of essays, videos and blogs and um, whatnot and so forth on Patreon at shows on Jack Hobner and a nice little community there of interesting um, oddball practitioners like myself. So people can find me at shows on Jack Hobner at Patreon. Yeah. Awesome, man. So yeah, if you're, if you're listening, you should definitely uh, check out Jack's stuff and yeah, man, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you. The audience has been great. Thank you. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>